today on Ag News Daily. Uh, Tennessee has had some really good crops in the last few years, uh, and their expectations have been raised. Uh, but we start the season off looking at Tennessee to provide about 1,033 pounds to, to just under 1,200 pounds. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Friday here on the Egg News Daily Podcast. I'm Dawson Schmidt, joined by Ashton Carr. Ashton, it's Friday. I'm feeling pretty good, but how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good as well. It's our first home game day weekend here in Lubbock, so we're going to tailgate tomorrow, so I'm pretty excited. Yeah, I'm definitely on that same page with you. I mean, our first home game was uh, last last week for Iowa State. However, this week is the Cyhawk game. So a lot of Iowans really excited for this one. And I do plan on attending. So this will be my first Iowa State football game that I've been to. So I'm pretty excited for that. Well, awesome. I'm super excited to hear that as well. I don't really like going to the games. I'm more of a tailgate kind of person, but I'm glad that we're back in football season because that means we're approaching fall and Delaney and I yesterday were talking about how much we liked fall and all the fall smells and all the fall tastes like pumpkin spice and all those kinds of things. So very excited about that. But going to go ahead and just jump into some news here, Dawson, because we have a lot to talk about today. And the first thing that I wanted to bring up was the Suez Canal, because it was blocked once again by a ship. And luckily, this time it was just there for about 15 minutes before it was freed and went on its merry little way. But we did see that happen for the second time this year. Yeah, I guess I'm really interested about that because I have not heard about that yet. And I don't really think that anything else could get as bad as what happened with the last blockage. But, you know, anything can happen, I guess, at this point, since we are still in, you know, 2021, where things have still been shaky after the whole 2022 or 2020 season. Uh, But one of the big things that I'm watching today is the WASDI report for September that came out today at 11 a.m. Central Time. Uh, we've been talking about this a lot for the last couple of weeks on, you know, with markets, how they've been fluctuating and a lot of different stuff going on. But one of the big things that we're watching here is that the USDA ended up backtracking some of their average acre yields for corn. In August, they ended up slashing yields down to 174 bushels per acre. However, they did backtrack that pegging the U.S. average at 176.3. We also saw a lot of larger supplies expected for corn for ending stocks, as well as increased feed and residual usage. And then exports, export predictions also rose. For soybeans, we also did see some increases for ending stocks. They did also leave uh, average yields a little bit higher than last month. And then soy crushings were reduced. For wheat, beginning stocks were left unchanged. However, ending stocks were reduced and then exports were also left unchanged. And so the market had a lot of reaction to that. Corn ended up dipping below $5, but soon perked up after that. And then at the end of the day, as we get into the markets here too, that we did see a little bit of you know higher action for corn, which is a little bit hopeful for that as well. And then soybeans also were quite reactive and pushed a little bit higher following the report as well. So I'm sure Delaney is going to have some stuff to say about that when it comes to market Monday next week, but that's just kind of what I'm seeing today. Well, Dawson, I have another story here that Delaney wanted to make sure we got through today and it's talking about CRP. 
The USDA has accepted more than 2.5 million acres from ag producers and private landowners for enrollment in the Grassland Conservation Reserve Program, which is more than double last year's enrollment and brings the total acres enrolled across all CRP signups in this year, 2021, to more than 5.3 million acres, surpassing USDA's goal of 4 million acres. FSA Administrator Zach Ducheneau says that he believes the increased interest stems from changes made in the program, and he says the changes made back in April to CRP continuous, general, and grasslands have made this a viable option for growers again. Changes that were made in the previous administration made it a less attractive alternative, and we really had hoped to stem the tide of people leaving CRP and acres coming out, and we have done that now with our CRP grasslands announcement. Some of the details that Ducheneau cites in in these changes He says that we set a nationwide minimum rental rate of $15 per acre, and that has really helped out producers that are out here working on some of the more arid plains participate in this program in a meaningful way. He added that we also had two special emphasis acres. One was the Elk Migratory Corridor in the Rocky Mountain region, and another was a special emphasis area in the Dust Bowl area, being western Kansas, southeastern Colorado, and the area that is prone to wind and soil erosion and the need of a little extra assistance. If people want to go and read a little bit more about grassland CRP, the changes that were made, they can definitely go and do so. The article that I was reading from is from Brownfield Ag News. So I won't go into all of the details and take up too much time since there was kind of a big news dump today and we have some other things to get to, but I highly suggest looking at this. Well, Ashton, another thing that I am watching here today is that the U.S. House will now include $1 billion dollars in biofuels funding for the initial draft of the new budget bill. And that's according to U.S. Representative Sidney Axney, who said that on Wednesday, the proposed funding is part of the $3.5 trillion reconciliation package for that was that the House is currently working on. And if passed, the $1 billion will go towards the U.S. Department of Agriculture to be used as grants to expand and upgrade biofuel infrastructure and to increase the usage of higher ethanol and diesel blends. Axney this summer did criticize the bipartisan infrastructure bill in a separate piece, which was a separate piece of legislation that included Republican support, but she criticized it due to the lack of biofuels funding. President Joe Biden is currently having his agenda set primarily towards electric vehicles, including a goal that half of all new cars in 2030 will be electric. And so, but this kind of backtracks to kind of attract a support from the agricultural sector. The Renewable Fuels Association president and CEO, Jeff Cooper, did come out and say that he's grateful that Senator Amy Klobuchar and Representative Cindy Axney and Angie Craig, as well as the Senate Ag Committee Chairwoman Debbie Stabenow and House Ag Committee Chairman David Scott, for moving this package forward and ensuring low-carbon renewable fuels have a seat at the table. Now, this could or could not happen as the $3.5 trillion bill does still have some strides to go, but the House Senate... House and Senate Democrats will be working together on the package and trying to push that through. However, some Democrats do remain worry do remain worrisome of the costs, um, and so it'll be just be interesting to see on you know how much obstacles that this package will actually face when trying to come through the reconciliation uh, form that they're trying to push it through.
Well, Dawson, moving right along here, I have an update coming from the Biden administration. As President Biden has announced a COVID-19 action plan that would require all employees of 100 or more workers or employers, I should say, of 100 or more workers to ensure that their workers are vaccinated or tested weekly, which includes most meatpacking workers. White House Senior Policy Advisor Cameron Webb says that the Tyson Foods mandate coming from the private sector has been very successful. He said that he believed it was almost half of their unvaccinated workforce became vaccinated after this mandate. And in the coming weeks, Webb says the Department of Labor will develop a rule for employers to implement through the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, otherwise known as OSHA. Webb was quoted as saying, this is just a doubling down, going a step further to make sure that we're doing everything we can to keep people safe no matter where they are, and that's in our schools and in our communities, but certainly in our places of business as well. And this is a bit of new news, just came out yesterday, so there hasn't been you know, a, a significant amount of feedback or anything yet, but from what I've seen, it's negative feedback. I would definitely agree, Ashton. There's a lot of people that are pushing for this, a lot of people that are pushing against this. Um, it's just one of those things that the Biden administration has been trying to find new ways to get more more people to have access to vaccines, as well as just more people to get the vaccine in general. But something else that I'm also watching today is that talks with China on lifting its ban for German pork imports after the African swine fever virus did hit the country, still remains difficult. And that is according to the German junior agricultural minister. He said China and a series of pork buyers banned imports from Germany and beginning in September of 2020 after Germany's first ASF case. And Germany is asking China to accept a regionalization concept, which would be a more localized approach to uh, banning imports from places that actually did have primary outbreaks of the virus. He said that negotiations with China are continuing at the level of experts, and but the negotiations are proving to be difficult. Other states are seeking a regionalization agreements with China, but have so far not been successful. He said that it's important that they continue this, but other countries have shown their readiness to accept the regionalization concept, and they're continuing to work towards China also accepting this. So far, Germany has been successful with containing ASF or at least containing it in more localized regions after the primary outbreak. But Germany's program to eradicate the ASF virus proves to be a long distance run and not a sprint. And so it's really curious on to see when when China will start opening up that access to German pork again. But so far, that proves to not be the case yet. Well, Dawson, I just have one other story to kind of round out my news for today. And it's just a brief one talking about bird flu. We've been watching these outbreaks and it seems that the virus is spreading once again pretty heavily in Europe as France has raised its bird flu alert level after a severe form of the virus was found among backyard poultry in the northeast. On top of cases in neighboring Belgium and Luxembourg, this health situation is a pretty intense one that they're 
taking it pretty seriously over in Europe. They're calling it a massive outbreak, and it led the government to agree that new biosecurity measures are needed to be taken within the poultry industry. And these included a requirement to confine flocks during risk periods and a commitment to reduce the density of flocks in the Southwest. So like I said, Dawson, they're taking it pretty seriously. Um, it's, it's ramping up once again, and it sounds like it's even more intense than what we have been seeing for the past you know, year, I would say. Well, Ashton, that is all I have for news today. Won't, why don't you say we get right into the markets? Let's do it. And like I said, the Wazdy report did come out today. It was a little bit more bearish uh, and neutral. However, we did get some more buying going on in the grain market. And we also did have another flash sale for soybeans this morning to China for 132,000 metric tons. But getting right into it for the grains, the December corn contract closed seven and a half cents higher at 517 and a half. The soybean up 16 cents to close at 1286 and a half. December wheat closed three and three quarter cents higher at 688 and a half. And onto the livestock market, a lot of red across the screen. The buying was not going on here, but getting into it right here, the, the October contract was down 32 and a half cents to close at 123.42 and a half. The December down 57 and a half cents to close at 128.22 and a half. Under feeder cattle, the October contract closed $1.52 and a half at 157.72 and a half. The November down $2.10 to close at 159.12.5. On to lean hogs, a lot of weakness here as well with the October contract closing $3 and two, two and a half cents lower at 82.45. The December down $3.37.5 to close at 76.10. And rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures. The October contract closing 21 cents lower at 17.34. The November down 20 cents to close at 17.30. And with that, Ashton, let's kick it over to a conversation with Shane Stevens of Staple Cotton. Well, happy Friday from the Ag News Daily Podcast. And we're excited on this Friday to talk to Shane Stevens, who is the VP of Cotton Services and Warehousing at Staple Cotton. Shane, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us today. Yeah, I'm glad to talk with you, Ashton. So before we get started talking about crop conditions and all of that fun stuff, will you just introduce yourself to our audience and introduce a little bit more about Staple Cotton for those who might not be familiar? Sure. Like you said, uh, my duties at Staple Cotton are with our warehouse division and with our cotton services division. The cotton services division represents the, the staff that deals directly with the growers that own uh, Staple Cotton. Staple Cotton is a uh, corporate-style business. It's a cooperative. It's a true farmer cooperative owned and operated for the financial benefit of the growers that use our services. We have an in-house bank called Staple Discount. We have a large warehousing operation with 14 different locations scattered across the Memphis Eastern Cotton Belt. Uh, and then the primary, the flagship of Staple Cotton is a cotton marketing association. And we market about a third of the cotton grown in the Memphis Eastern Territory, the 11 states that make up the eastern half of U.S. cotton production, uh, which makes it about 15 or 16 percent of the U.S. crop in total. Well, Shane, a lot of these crop updates that we've been doing, uh, I've mainly been talking to some corn and soybean farmers, but can you kind of give us an overview on how cotton planting went down uh, for Mississippi and the other states that you cover? Sure, Dawson. I'm sure you heard some of the same uh, 
reports from your grain growers that you've been talking to, but we had a, a rough start to the spring. Uh, we There was two reasons that we planted less cotton in the Memphis Eastern Territory uh, than, than were intended back if you start at the beginning of our planting season, which is usually around April 1st. Uh, number one, cotton did not compete with the grains uh, price-wise uh, in order to maintain this acreage. So some growers shifted their intentions and we planted a little less cotton. But what we also ran into was excess rain, excess rain and moisture in the, a lot of the cotton belt, uh, which reduced uh, the plantings uh, because they couldn't get the cotton in in time. And we also lost a little cotton, which is unusual for the Memphis Eastern Territory, but we actually had some failed acres that were planted and not going to be taken to harvest. Uh, so we, we planted less cotton in the Memphis Eastern Territory uh, for the lack of competition with grain prices early in the season and also for the weather impact in the spring. Well, now that we're deeper into the growing season, what's it looking like out there on the eastern half of the U.S.? Of course, I'm here in Lubbock, and so a lot of our stuff isn't looking too uniform, not looking too bad, but what's it looking like out there? Yeah, Ashton, uh, the Memphis Eastern Territory makes up almost as much as the as Texas does. Texas is over half the crop, but we're also important to the overall uh, production in the United States. And our crop is a little more consistent year in and year out than you see in the in the Southwest. Uh, this year, our crop started off like I mentioned earlier. Uh, uh, late uh, due to weather and excessive moisture in the spring. It has recovered nicely in most places. And I, I was going to go kind of state by state with you, but just a, a general overview of our crop is it's average to a little above average. Uh, most growers feel good about their crop. Very few people feel really good about their crop, uh, but there is some uh, some holes out there here or there. Uh, but that's a, a normal season, I would think. So we've got a good potential uh, to make a average to above average crop. Well, Shane, we heard that you guys kind of received quite a bit of, you know, rain the last couple of weeks due to Hurricane Ida and that affected not just your state, but other states across the Southeast. Can you kind of give us an overview on kind of how that affected or might have effective, might have affected uh, the cotton crop down there? Sure, Dawson. Uh, it, it, of course, the headlines have been about Hurricane Ida, and there's no doubt that it was devastating. It was devastating and perhaps more devastating than previous major hurricanes that have hit the coast uh, for some uh, people that are associated uh, with industries down there and for the, the actual people that live along the coast and along the Louisiana and Mississippi uh, border. There's no doubt it was a lot of damage to them, and look at the, the effect it's had on the grain markets and the or the grain uh, export markets and the processing uh, capacity down on the Gulf and the, the crude oil uh, production uh, in the Gulf. It certainly affected them, but I'm happy to report that it was very minimal damage to the U.S. cotton crop and to the cotton crop along the Mississippi, uh, Alabama, Georgia. And as you come up the Mississippi, Alabama line, the track of Hurricane Ida really did minimal damage. I, I, I can't talk about Hurricane Ida without mentioning what really probably causes much or more damage to the cotton crop would have been that tropical, tropical storm Fred that was two or three weeks before Ida. Uh, it it put about three, two or three inches of rain on a lot of cotton and also had some high winds, 50, 60 mile an hour winds, twisted that cotton up. And then with Ida following Fred, it continued to uh, keep some of that very southern portion of the, of the mid-south and southeast crop too wet and, uh, and has 
resulted in some bow rot, some damage to the crop. Uh, and, and really, if you talk about Ida and how much damage it did, uh, you have to say today it was minimal damage, but if those areas of the Florida Panhandle, Southwest Georgia, and Southeast Alabama continue to get moisture, then that damage from Ida will show up uh, as, as you continue to uh, to damage that crop with bow rot and hard lock. Now, uh, what it looks like today, we've got a pretty decent forecast. Uh, if we can dry out and, and get a little lower humidity, we think that the, the damage from Ida will be very minimal. And this might be a good time to kind of go through state by state and talk about this. But when we're looking at harvest expectations, what are some things that we might be anticipating to see from your portion of the U.S., Shane? Sure. Uh, like I said, staple cotton is the uh, is a farmer true farmer marketing cooperative. We're the oldest cotton marketing cooperative in the United States, uh, founded in 1921. And so we're celebrating our 100th anniversary this year and have our annual meeting next next week and looking forward to that and celebrating 100 years of, of marketing growers cotton in, in the Memphis Eastern Territory. Well, if it's OK with you, we'll start in the in the mid-south here at the northernmost state, which is Missouri. Uh, Missouri uh, has the, has a good crop, probably the best crop relative to average of the 11 states that we market cotton in. Uh, its range of expectation uh, of yields would be from just over 1,000 pounds to uh, just under 1,400 pounds, pretty broad range, but the average would be 1,235 pounds. Staple cotton staff in Missouri right now is projecting a 1,273-pound crop, so a pretty good crop above average. Uh, as you move south into Arkansas, the northern part of Arkansas is very similar to Missouri, is above average crop, looks pretty good. Expectations in Arkansas would start the season off somewhere between just under 1,100 pounds to maybe 1,200 pounds for the state, uh, with an average of about 1,140 pounds. Uh, we're carrying Arkansas today at 1,187 pounds. So again, a little above average, just like Missouri. Pretty good crop. Tennessee, uh, Tennessee has had some really good crops in the last few years, uh, and their expectations have been raised. Uh, but we start the season off looking at Tennessee to provide about 1,033 pounds to, to just under 1,200 pounds, uh, with an average of just under 1,100 pounds. Today, we're actually carrying Tennessee below that 1,100-pound average, but still at a pretty good crop of about 1,040 pounds. Uh, when, when you come into Mississippi, we're looking at a 1,140-pound uh, crop here. Uh, Staple cotton staff is carrying Mississippi at what is considered just above an average crop. Mississippi's average would be 1,124 pounds. Uh, expectations would be from 1,040 to 1,200 pounds. Uh, we move south into Louisiana. Louisiana's got a good crop. I mean, it had some really severe weather challenges at planting season and did not get its very southern portion of cotton planted like it had intended. That's the portion of cotton that would have been damaged by Ida, but that cotton just simply uh, did not get planted. So we're carrying Louisiana, believe it or not, a really good crop for that state, 1,080 pounds. Its average five-year average would be more like 990 pounds. Uh, we move across into the southeast, which would be Alabama, the first, uh, the westernmost state that we consider the southeast. Uh, Alabama's got an okay crop. Its average is uh, just over 915 pounds, maybe 920 pounds. We're carrying Alabama to about a 900-pound crop today, so just under its five-year average. Uh, Florida, uh, Florida has had 
Florida can make some really good cotton, really good growers down there to know what they're doing. They just have had really tough harvest seasons, three out of the last four seasons. That's lowered their expectations in Florida to an average crop of about 757 pounds. We're carrying the Florida crop today at 762 pounds. There is plenty of acreage in Florida that has two bell potential plus. Uh, they just have to dry out and get some low humidity and, and the, the damage from all, all the excess moisture has to stop. And, and so we're hoping that that happens, but we're carrying Florida at an average crop. Now, Georgia is such a big state. It's, it's not Texas, but it's next to Texas in size and its contribution to the U.S. cotton industry. And so we divide it up. Southwest Georgia, we're carrying at a little above average, 966 pounds. The further south in southwest Georgia you go, the closer you get to that same situation we're talking about in Florida with excess moisture doing some damage to the crop. And that's showing up today. The further north you get, the further away from the coast, the better that crop seems to get. Uh, central Georgia, the same way. We've got a good crop in Central Georgia, expecting above average yields. Uh, and when you go to Eastern Georgia, uh, we really think they have a really good crop in Eastern Georgia. And we're expecting our field staff out there is telling us that the potential out there is to have a really good crop, uh, well above average. So overall, we're carrying the Georgia crop at 966 pounds, but we, we can see Georgia making a thousand pounds this year as a state, which, uh, which is a really good crop. We, we move from Georgia on up into the Carolinas and to Virginia. Uh, we're, we're carrying uh, North Carolina at 922 pounds. Its five-year average is 844 pounds. We're carrying South Carolina at 852 pounds. Its five-year average is 790 pounds. Uh, Virginia, we're carrying at just over 1,000 pounds, and it traditionally makes around 900 pounds. So all three of those states today were carrying above average. They got moisture that was badly needed. Everywhere else I've talked to has not needed moisture, has had excess moisture, but it's been very dry in the eastern Georgia up through the Carolinas into Virginia, and, and the crop is late, so they just benefited from some rain. They just received from a half inch to as much as three inches, uh, and we think that's going to help finish off that crop. When you when you put when you put all eleven states together, staple cotton staff is carrying the eleven states today at a thousand and thirteen pound yield, which is a good yield for the Memphis Eastern Territory. Well, Shane, it's great to hear that things are going well overall, and we're hoping for that you know good harvest that will come this fall. And but, anyways, we just appreciate you really talking to us and giving us an idea of how the cotton crop is looking down there and. We also wish you luck on your 100th anniversary for uh, Mississippi cotton and or staple cotton. And uh, hopefully that things go well in the future for you as well. Uh, well, we appreciate it, Dawson. And thank you for the well wishes. And, uh, and, and we also hope the crop finishes off. All my, all my projections that I gave you state by state are assuming normal weather and, and nothing crazy happening from here on out. Uh, we could do a little better than this if we uh, get a late fall work. The whole U.S. crop, or the majority of the U.S. crop, is is uh, very similar in that it's later than than they'd like it to be, a little later than average. Uh, needs a good fall to finish up, and so we could see the yields that I gave you creep up if we have a good fall, and certainly if uh, if we have a early freeze and, and some cool temperatures and and excess moisture, you could go the other way. But right now, overall, now cotton growers are looking at a above average crop, in my opinion, almost. Uh, exclusively across the country. Uh, and that's a good thing. So we appreciate it. Appreciate the well wishes. And uh, I, I wish you, you the best. And Ashton and Dawson, if we can help either one of you in the future, let us know.
Once again, a big thank you to Shane. It was a good conversation to kind of get a crop update for cotton. And like I said in that interview, I really haven't gotten a lot of updates from those states. It's more been in the Midwest, but you know, I'm, I was pretty surprised that they're seeing a little less damage from Hurricane Ida than what I re- originally expected. I know I am in the same boat as you and he, I think it was Tropical Storm Fred that Shane was talking about. I didn't even have that on my radar at all. So I'm glad that we were able to talk to him, get a little bit of a better view on what the Eastern portion of the U.S. looks like when it comes to cotton, because all I get to see here is West Texas cotton. So it sounds like they have a little bit more uniformity and hopefully their harvest is good come the next you know few weeks or so but with that Dawson should we let the people go let's let them go